Thank you, worship team. You know the worship is good when you forget your preaching during the middle of it. Uh, kids, you are dismissed. I am going to miss you so much this morning. It's been an awesome time learning about the Lord. Go with Anna down the middle there. Uh, as Austin mentioned, my name is Jeremiah. I am the pastor to the kids' ministry here at Cedar Mill. Please cheer for the kids. They're awesome. Um, and it is usually my privilege to be off with them on Sunday morning, and it is exciting to be in here with what we call Big Church. Um, but I will miss them dearly. So I'm going to start this morning with a confession. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you have your like uh, pastor guy sermon bingo card, the pastor's confession, you get to do that box right now. Uh, my confession is this. I have had a growing guilt in my soul recently. Uh, as I've been listening to Dave tell this series and teach this series, he has repeatedly talked about a film called The Prince of Egypt. And I must confess to you, as a person whose vocational job is to teach the word of the Lord to children, I still have never watched The Prince of Egypt. People on YouTube, you can blast me in the comments. I will not even defend myself for my sins here. Uh, and in fact, it gets even worse. This week when I was telling my wife, Donan, that I've never seen The Prince of Egypt, she says, well, I've seen it. And I'm like, I watch more movies than you. How have you seen this and I haven't? She's like, we watched it on the China project where we met. When we were in China, we watched this movie with our Chinese roommates. Where were you? So I spent the better part of a week trying to figure out where I was that night. My roommate was there. My Chinese roommate watched it. I was not there. So I have not seen The Prince of Egypt. Uh, Dave has referenced it. I could have watched it this week. It would have been called my job to watch it this week for prep, and I still didn't do it. So I should uh, rectify that. I have overseen The Ten Commandments. Shout out to my brother, Sean, who's hanging out with my sick kid this morning. He showed me that a couple years ago. But it makes a ton of sense that the story of Moses, and particularly the Exodus story, has been put to film so many times. It is a very cinematic story, is it not? We have like the tragedy, we have murders, we have rejection, we have burning bushes, we have courtroom drama between Moses and Pharaoh that is up there with any John Clancy book or movie you've ever seen. Disney, it's time for a remake at me with the CGI of the plagues. Like, let's go. We can do this. It is such a cinematic story. So I'll admit, when I came to do my prep this week on the 10th plague, I expected kind of more of the same. I expected more of a dramatic story, big moments. And they're definitely there in today's story. But at least half of the scripture that I'm looking at this morning actually feels like a quiet pause. It feels like a moment that is almost utterly unfilmable. It's a description of how to become a faithful people. It's the beginning stages of crafting a new identity. And these things don't make great Hollywood movies. They're kind of the what's after happily ever after that we choose to sometimes ignore in our big cultural stories. So really today's sermon is going to be a story in two acts. Our first act is going to continue the throne room drama that we've come to see. We get our last showdown with Moses and Pharaoh in his throne room. And then we're going to go to a quiet second act. 
We're going to leave the pomp and the circumstance of Pharaoh's temple, of Pharaoh's throne room, and we're going to go into a simple slave home. And what it means when the story of God's delivering power comes home to you and why that is so important to us. And we're also going to have two acts as well. The first act of what is what it looks like to be delivered from Egypt. We've come to the moment where Pharaoh's hand will be forced and deliverance is happening. And the second act is going to be, how does God begin the work of delivering our own hearts and souls from Egypt's influence? So let's start with act one. So this is found in uh, Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to read the whole dang thing. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Stop and take a note here. For the past couple of weeks, we've been seeing Pharaoh saying, no, I'm not letting you go. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> and now we're shifting to God saying to Moses, Pharaoh himself is going to drive you out. That is how powerful of a hand I'm going to bring that Pharaoh is going to drive you out now. This is a massive shift. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. How far Moses has come. So that was all what God said to Moses. Now Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. Picture our, picture our throne room, all the pomp and circumstance. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than there ever has been, or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Exodus chapter 11, verses one through 10. So Dave had a really helpful chart last week um, in his sermon showing how the first nine plagues represented an Egyptian God. That as God has been doing his delivering work to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, he has been addressing the power structure of each and every one of the Egyptian gods. Now we get to the 10th plague, which is reserved for the 10th God. And when we see that God is taking on the gods of Egypt in actually chapter 12, verse 12, when God says, I will bring my judgment on the gods of Egypt. But Egypt did have a 10th God, and the 10th God was Pharaoh himself. 
The belief was that Pharaoh was God enfleshed, God on earth. And so Sean Gladding in his amazing narrative overview of scripture called The Story of God, The Story of Us, which I'm just gonna give a brief shout out for. If you've ever struggled with reading the whole Bible but have wanted to, The Story of God, The Story of Us is a narrative overview that is a really helpful first step in that process. I highly recommend it. This is what he says of Pharaoh's deity and why the 10th plague was addressing this aspect. The Egyptians, the dynasty of the pharaohs, the sons of Ra, depended on the survival of the sun more than the pharaoh himself. For the firstborn son of the pharaoh was a sign of the god Ra's ongoing presence with them, with the pharaoh line. God's judgment on the firstborn of Egypt declared that the gods behind the pharaoh's brutal and oppressive rule were powerless and would be allowed to tyrannize humanity no longer. This final plague is a pivotal moment in the story of God. After this plague, God told Moses, Pharaoh would let God's people go. So again, last week, Dave referenced how many of the plagues up to this point could almost be attributed to natural disasters. And at the very least, they were taking place outside of Pharaoh's house. They weren't directly impacting Pharaoh. But now, as God is turning his attention to breaking Pharaoh's grip on the people, Pharaoh's claim to be God, Pharaoh's claim to his very power structure, God is taking on Pharaoh's vitality, his future, his, what he believed to be God-ordained ability to protect his own people, God would show was impotent in comparison to the power of Yahweh. And this, of course, is the moment we've been building to for months. The question that's been live in the text has been, what would it take for Pharaoh to actually relent his hand? What would it take for Pharaoh to actually see that he is not in charge and he does not have power over his circumstances? And sadly, tragically, it's this. This is what it takes for Pharaoh to break his grip. This is what it takes for the people to release their grip on Pharaoh and the belief that their size and power and structure makes them superior and protected by the gods of the world. And a note, this is really, really hard. Yes, this is God's hand of power delivering his people. It is a story of triumph. We celebrate the God who can deliver from even the most oppressive circumstances. And, and we mourn the idea of waking up to a dead baby, to a dead child. We mourn that slave woman at the handmill who was not oppressing Israel, but was part of this oppressive regime. We mourn and we celebrate. We feel both things at once as way too often we have to do this side of heaven. And that, my friends, is chapter 11. And we go to chapter 12. And this is where the scene, as I said before, takes a radical shift. If you have been reading through the plagues with us at all, you'll notice something that I didn't really notice all this week. While the people 
The people of God were prominently mentioned so much at the beginning of Exodus. They're the ones who cry out to God. They're the ones who reject Moses after he kills the Egyptian. They're the ones that accept Moses when he comes back 40 years later. They're the ones who reject him again when they have to do bricks without straw. They're all over the early parts of the story, and yet they're largely absent during the plagues themselves. And now Moses has been sent back to these people who, by the way, he has a very checkered history with. The rest of Moses' life is never going to take place in the throne room of Pharaoh again. That time of Moses' role in delivering the people ended when he left with his fiery anger. The rest of his life is going to be leading these people in a long and arduous process of getting the influence and the impact of Egypt out of their hearts and out of their souls. And chapter 12 is the beginning of that process. For chapter 12, Moses teaches the people. He says to them, you are to take an unblemished lamb. You are to kill it and put its blood on your door frame. You were to roast it to get all the blood out of it. You were to make bread without yeast because there's not time to wait for something to rise. You who have never worn your shoes indoor one day of your life, cook with your sandals on because you don't know when you need to run. Until this week, I didn't know what it meant to gird your loins. It literally means to take your long robe, tie it up around your belt because you got some running to do and otherwise you have to hike it up like a skirt. You need to put bitter herbs to remember how painful slavery was. You need to go to your neighbors and say, this is my last night here. I need some gold and silver. You need to participate in your own work of deliverance, and this is the night it's going to occur, and chapter 12 ends with the occurrence. The Lord does walk through the streets He does exactly what he promised, and he passes over the people of Israel. And some commentators think possibly some of the Egyptian residents of the city of Goshen who are friendly to the Jews and may have gone with them into exile or may have gone with them into the deliverance of Exodus. And indeed, Pharaoh ends the chapter saying, get out, leave, I never want to see you again. But chapter 12 has another element to it as well. In chapter 12, in these simple slave homes, walking through this process, Moses begins to instruct the people of what they need to do in the future. He doesn't just tell them what they have to do tonight. He instructs them on what they will do the rest of their lives, what they will pass on to their children, what their children will pass on to their children, and what will come to define the people. So this is how chapter 12 begins. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now you might read this like I did and assume the people of Israel were a pre-modern people who hadn't started tracking time on a calendar and you like me would actually be incorrect. The Hebrew people had had a calendar for over a hundred years at this point and the Exodus likely took place in the 10th month of their calendar. They were already tracking time. So the Lord says, actually, everything to this point was something else. 
this is now the beginning of your time. You will mark time by this night, by this event, by this story. Your calendar will orbit around this story of God's deliverance. Your way of tracking where you are in the course of a year, where you are in the course of a lifetime, where you are in your story will be tracked not by what you've known previously, but will be tracked by what is, being, what is going to happen this very night. This is your new year. This is your new life. Which got me thinking about how do we mark our time? Do we mark our time by the time before we were, before, when we were at home with our parents, before we left to be on our own? Do we mark our time by college? Do we mark our time by marriage? By the birth of children? By that new job? By that magical word we sometimes hear in our lives, remission? How do we mark time? Because we mark time by what matters, right? We mark time by our major shifts. We mark time as a way of saying that was before and this is after. And the Lord said to the Israelite people, there was a before and there is a now and an after. And you mark time by this now that I am doing. Going down to chapter, to verse 24. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, this is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses." And the people bowed down and worshiped. Can I be a kid's pastor for a moment? You knew I was going to find the part of the text that said children, right? Why? Why do we have to do this every year? Why do we have to keep telling the story? Well, you have to keep telling the story because this story must be passed on. This is who we are. This is a story that I want you to gift to your children. And how much harder does that hit for a people that have almost been defined for generations by their children being stolen from them and killed? You, my friends, had a past and it was painful. But on this day, declares the Lord, you have a future. You have a future. And your children are going to ask you, why? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because we have a God who delivers. We have a God that when we called out in distress, he heard us. And I will bait your lips to ask that question over and over again. I will salt your tongue to make you thirsty to hear of this Lord over and over again, because this story is only as powerful as it is able to be passed on and to work through us and to rewire us. This week, a friend of mine who's a Messianic Jew gave me a guide to do a Messianic Seder for Passover. And one of the parts of it that is so beautiful to me, smack dab in the middle, the children are prompted to ask questions and the Seder is guided by their questions. Why do we eat unleavened bread? Because we were in a hurry. 
Why do we taste bitter vegetables? Because slavery was bitter on our tongues and in our lives. Why, why, why? Why do we recline when we eat? We recline when we eat because when we were slaves, we couldn't. And now we can lay back and luxuriate in this feast because of who the Lord is and because of what the Lord has done. It is a in-home liturgy that is to be celebrated once a year that passes the story through all of the generations. Which raises the question, was it effective? Not always, right? The prophets will come afterwards and they will speak of dead ritual. Jesus will speak of dead ritual. But has it held a community's identity together for thousands of years? Yes, it has. This story has held a community's identity together for thousands of years, which makes me ask the question, what liturgies do we have? Liturgy just means the work of the people. What liturgies are, do we have in our homes, in our communities? Because we all have liturgies. Kevin spoke of the Super Bowl next weekend. I know when the Super Bowl comes, my brother and I each make chili and we compare which one is better, which usually which one is hotter, which means the kids won't eat any of it. <laughs> when I lived in Moscow, I knew who I invited over to my house for that event. It was an annual liturgy. Do you wake up in the morning and make a cup of coffee and then doom scroll on your phone? That is a liturgy. Do you pray with your family before you eat dinner? That is a liturgy. It tells a story. It wires us. What liturgies shape us? How are we wired by our liturgies? As I mentioned earlier, this is really a sermon about how do we get Egypt out of us. And I should make a note here. Um, unlike when we like dunk on Babylon, there is literally an Egypt still here. I watched them play soccer yesterday. Egypt is Babylon, which is Syria, which is Rome, which maybe is other nations right now that exploit people. And we'll get more into that. So when I use Egypt, I'm not speaking literally about Egypt. It seems like a lovely country. I have friends who've gone there, who've met with Coptic Christians. It's a wonderful, beautiful land um, that in this story means something else. So if you had your uh, preacher guy bingo card, we're about to get to the movie reference bingos tab. You can tab the movie reference right now. We'll go back to the year 1999. I am 18 years old and I've been put on a plane by myself for the first time in my life. My parents got to walk me all the way to the gate. It was a very different time before 9-11. And I flew to Boston, Massachusetts to spend my spring break with my aunt. And she said, I have to work, go downtown, find something to do. <laughs> and being a very uncreative kid from the suburbs, I went to a movie and I went to see The Matrix. And it blew my mind, man. <laughs> if you were like a late teen in 1999, The Matrix was your jam. And I went to go see The Matrix and I'm a, right now, spoiler alert, but it's over 20 years old. I feel in my rights. 
The big twist of the Matrix is that humanity and the machines had a great war. Humanity, in a last-ditch effort to win the war, blows up the sky so the, so the machines can't get solar power anymore. And then the machines win, and they're like, oh, we have a power problem. Oh, wait, here's all these people we've just uh, subjugated. They produce 98.6 degrees body heat. Let's harvest them plug them into a machine so they're happy, thinking none of this has happened, and we'll use their heat to power ourselves. And this is all explained much better than I just did by Lawrence Fishburne. He can do most things better than me, I suppose. And he has this great moment where he says, we have been reduced to batteries. And if you watched The Matrix in 1999, you spent at least one sleepless night wondering, am I a battery? Is that what I am? And one of the reasons I think that story hits so hard and continues to hit so hard is because there are ways that I think we suspect or we've seen in the history of humanity the reduction of people to energy sources, batteries, or commodities. I am not blind to the fact that I am preaching in the first weekend of February, which in our nation we celebrate Black History which means you have to remember part of black history is the story that for generations, black people in America were simply the commodity that drove the engine of the US economy. Yet, we also celebrate black history. And the fact that that community continued to hold its identity in the midst of being told you were less than. How? Well, I think many people would say the black church, and specifically the way the black church held onto the story of Exodus. Harriet Tubman, the great conductor of the Underground Railroad, when she came to town, the people in that community didn't call her Harriet, they didn't call her Miss Tubman, they called her Moses, because she was the deliverer of her people. Moses came to town. So freedom was on the way. The shift from being a commodity to a person made in the image of God is at foot because Moses is here. However, we would be negligent to take the stories of the ways that people have been turned into commodities and root them in a past that we can feel bad about, that we can even track the ramifications of to this day, but still feel somehow distant from our own experience. So I have some questions I'd like you to ask yourself. Have you ever worked a job where you felt more like you were an ID number or a cell in someone's Excel spreadsheet than a person with a story, with a family, with a history, with a present and with a future? Have you ever been asked to manage people in a way that reduces them to a commodity as well? Or have you ever been in a relationship, romantic or otherwise, where you discovered, I think this person only cares about me as a means to their own happiness, as a means to their own identity, a means to their own satisfaction, I exist for this other person's pleasure, not as a real, living, breathing person in their lives. 
I will confess, before I knew Jesus, I was guilty of treating several people in my life this way. Or, have you ever been part of a church where you felt like you bought into an idea of community and one day you woke up and realized, I feel like I'm more a tithe, a headcount, or a demographic checkmark? And I don't think this is even just people at the bottom or people who are like faceless masses that experience this. One of my hobbies is I love listening to podcasts about basketball. Yes, bingo card, sports reference time. Before I moved to Portland, I knew of a basketball player for the Blazers named Anthony Simons. He was talked about in podcasts all the time, yet I never uh, heard about his sweet three-point shot or the ways he was an emerging defensive menace. I always heard him attached to one term. Anthony Simons, this dynamic young player, was called Asset. I knew him more as Asset than player. He was an asset so that the team could trade to upgrade if they wanted to. Here's a person making an unfathomable amount of money. The top 100 people in his profession in the entire world. And what was he reduced down to by talking heads with microphones? An asset, a thing. See, I would venture to say that Egypt is alive and well in our world. Egypt is alive and well in our lives. The commodization of people is as natural as the air that we breathe. It is what we do outside of the influence of God, outside of knowing our identity in God. So what is the cost if we don't get Egypt out of us? One, we will perpetuate the commodification of others. We will see other people to be exploited for utility or obstacles to our own success, our own victory, our own ability to see the world become what we want it to become. People who ideologically disagree with us will become our enemies. The person handing us a cup of coffee will be a machine handing us a cup of coffee, not a human with a story that we could be curious about. If we accept commodification, we commodify other people. Wendell Berry, the brilliant ethicist, and I would say prophet of our age, once wrote, it is easy to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between people who wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. If we don't get Egypt out of us, other people are commodities. We accept our identity as commodities, as batteries, for someone else's pleasure and efficiency. And finally, if we do not get Egypt out of us, we will see God through the same lens as the boss at work who asks, always asks, can you do more? The disapproving parent. We will see God as somebody who always says, you almost gave enough. Can you do a little better next time? 
We'll always see God as somebody saying, can you do more? Can you give us more? God and Pharaoh will start to look too much alike for what I am comfortable with if we do not get this sense of people and us as batteries out of our lives. God wants to say to us, as he said to the people of Israel, you are mine, you are my children, I will fight for you, I will deliver you. And we will say, but you just want more of me, right? You're just disappointed in me, right? That's what happens if we do not get this virus out of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And as I said, this process was not simple. We are gonna spend a lot of time continuing through Moses's life, watching the people wrestle with this identity. Am I Egypt or am I Israel? Am I following the patterns that have been put on me or will I let God create new pathways, new understanding, a new vision of freedom inside of me? Will I accept I'm a child or will I always believe that deep down I'm just a battery? And Jesus himself would step into this in such a beautiful way. Jesus would choose the Seder, the Passover Seder table to announce the work that he was gonna do on the cross to make the commitment to his people. And of course, Jesus did. Of course, Jesus chose to enter the story of God's deliverance because as he says earlier in scripture, he is not here to change or to abolish what God has done before, but to fulfill it. And he knew that he could step into the place of the Passover table and fill it better than it had ever been filled before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says of Jesus that Jesus is our once and for all Passover lamb. John the Baptist, when he pointed his disciples to Jesus and said, that's the guy right there, how did he describe Jesus? He described him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the lamb on Passover evening could allow God's justice to walk through the neighborhood and to pass them over. It could cover their own failings and mistakes and their own sins. But Jesus has a unique ability as God's Passover lamb to take away any left ramifications of that sin in their lives. That is what Jesus can do. But Jesus did something else at the table. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus didn't say, hey, tomorrow I'm gonna die on a cross. That's gonna reconcile you to God if you accept it. And you're good. I'll see you after you die. Jesus said, you need to remember because my blood will set you free from sin but the practice of coming to this table and remembering this story is the prescription to get the virus of Egypt, the virus of Babylon, the virus of Syria, the virus of Rome out of your system so that you can enter into the identity of being a child of God because you will forget. The most oft ignored command in scripture is the command to remember. And Jesus says, in response to that, do this. Make this the beginning of your year. Make this the story you tell your children. Make this the practice you do over and over again. Come to my table, accept the reality of my sacrifice because I am the perfect Passover lamb. And as you come and you rewire your mind around this story, you will live in a way that is shockingly free to the rest of the world. 
You will live in a way that declares your son and your daughtership to God, to the rest of the world. The world will not know what to do with you anymore because you have been set free in a way that no one else can understand. You have unplugged from the matrix, my friends, and you are free. Really, if we could just like, I could just preach that last song we did in worship because that is the story of this message. Do we accept just the sacrifice or do we accept the invitation to be rewired by the story? And how do we pass that on to our children, to our own hearts and to our own minds again this morning? A couple of invitations. Um, I'm gonna pray for us this morning. It's gonna be a little bit more of an extended prayer time. I first wanna talk to anyone in the room that as you hear the story of Passover, as you hear the story of blood covering sin and of freedom that comes from that moment, and you're like, actually, I've never done that. I actually have never accepted the fact that without the shed blood of Jesus, I cannot stand before God. I never accepted that God loves me so much that he would actually die for me. I'm gonna pray for you this morning. And if that is you, if you need to accept the sacrifice of Jesus this morning while we're praying, I ask you to simply respond physically by putting your hands out to receive it as a gift. And I also implore you, if you stick your hands out, a lot of people have their eyes closed, you might be able to sneak out of here without anybody noticing. Don't do that. Find somebody. We'll have people to pray in the connect room. I would love to talk to you if that's your decision this morning. There'll be a moment for that. But for most of us, for most of us who have to accept the reality that there's ways that Egypt still dwells in us, it still shapes our view of the world, it shapes our experience in the world, I first want to say welcome. I did not enjoy writing this sermon this week. Not for one minute. I had to confront a lot of Egypt this week. If that's you as well, I also invite you to receive prayer because there is a spiritual transaction in the same way that if a snake bites you, you got to suck that venom out of the wound that has to happen in prayer this morning. It just does. You're not going to do it on your own. The story of God's deliverance is not the people of Israel rise up and they kicked Egypt out. The story is they cried out to God. We will cry out to God to ask for that freedom. But I also want you to take time to think critically about the liturgies of your life. Do your liturgies reinforce that you are a commodity or do your liturgies reinforce that you are a child of God? February 22nd is the beginning of Lent. Lent is a season that we check our liturgies. We fast the ways that we tell ourselves the stories of commodity and embrace new stories and new liturgies that say, I am a free child of God. If you have never participated in a season like that, I invite you to prayerfully consider it this morning. I invite you to have your stories rewritten and rewired by God's retelling of his story over your life this season. One more thing before I pray. It is a communion Sunday. It has to be a communion Sunday, right? We're talking Passover. So when I say amen, you can just come straight to the tables. Save the elements. We'll do that together. But when I say amen, come straight to the tables. We have the single serve and we have traditional communion this week. 
Take whatever's comfortable. It's all the same. But let this be our first liturgy of the first day of this new year that God is doing in our lives. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that at your core, you are a deliverer. That the people of God cried out to you in their distress. They cried out to you in their slavery. They cried out to you and they were nothing more than commodities in Egypt and you heard their cry. And we affirm again this morning that you are the God who hears our cries, who hears us when we cry out in our distress, who hears us when we can't bear it anymore. And that with a mighty hand, you set your people free from Egypt. And with a mighty sacrifice, Jesus, you set your people free from sin. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Lord, I wanna pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who just have never been able to take that step and believe that they have sin and that your blood takes it away. Who have tried every other way to make themselves good, rise and grind. They've done the work, they've done everything they need to do, but they've never actually said, Jesus, you are my only deliverer. I believe there's a God in heaven who calls me child. And I'm going to accept that reality this morning. So that is you. I invite you to put your hands out as I pray for you. Lord, bless these people who are making this decision to come to know you, to come to accept your sacrifice. Whether they are in person here or out on YouTube, Lord, it hits the same. Lord, be their deliverer. Your blood has never failed a single person in the history of the world, and it never will. We rejoice with our friends today. And for the rest of us, Lord, this world does not tell us a story that we are children of God. We are reduced to algorithms, to numbers. Many of us maybe perceive ourselves as just files on an Amazon desktop somewhere. And you look through all of that and you say, no, that's my child. I see you, you are my child and I love you. Lord, please fight for us again this morning. Extract the lies of this world, the lies of Egypt out of us like venom from our veins. Restore in us an identity that we are free in you, that we are children of God, beloved by you. Lord, fill us with a sense that we do have a good, good Father in heaven. Battle for us, deliver us, deliver our minds and our hearts, rewire us that your story becomes our story. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Please come to the table.